Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm the Anxious Poet. My name's Adrian. And those of you who've uh, got in touch with me about the previous ones, thanks. It's nice to know that it's helping. In the first podcast, I mentioned a book, Becoming Animal, by David Abraham, and commented that I intended to actually read it rather than have it sitting on my shelf with its beautiful cover depicting a raven. Well, I'm still on the introduction. The writing is so rich, like Christmas cake. The words are heavy laden and need space in the soul. I'm on page 11, and here's a sample. Oral language gusts through us. Our sounded phrase is born by the same air that nourishes the cedars and swells the cumulus clouds. Laid out and immobilised in the flat surface, our words tend to forget that they are sustained by this windswept earth. They begin to imagine that their primary task is to provide a representation of the world, as though they were outside of, not really part of this world. Nonetheless, the power of language remains, first and foremost, a way of singing oneself into contact with others and with the cosmos, a way of bridging the silence between oneself and another person, or a startled black bear, or the crescent moon soaring like a billowed sail above the roof. Whether sounded on the tongue, printed on the page, or shimmering on the screen, language's primary gift is not to represent the world around us, but to call ourselves into the vital presence of that world, into the deep and attentive presence of one another. See what I mean? It's poetic and philosophical. It bears some pondering, some chewing over. So, the language in this podcast is an attempt to call ourselves into the vital presence of the world and each other. I want to do this primarily by an appreciative foray into the natural world. David Abraham speaks in that passage of a startled black bear reflecting his American fauna. Thankfully, I don't startle many black bears in Sheffield's Rivlin Valley. More likely to be a heron or a magpie or a sheep in the field where my border collie makes a lead prescribed lunge at them. Here's one of my animal poems. The Stag on My Road Crossing the Yorkshire Wolds on the way to Whitby, a stop for relief on a single track road. Stepping down to find a spot as before me spreads a sea of wheat, all green ears whispering, turning gold. About to return, I stop, wrapped in the swaying field. Then a swishing to the left as panoramic past me strides a young stag, just sprouting antlers from his beautiful brow, definite in his direction, 
a prow through a wheaten sea. A gasp with delight as he leaves me standing, his tan sleekness outbreaking wildness from a rural earth. Where are you going? I call to his retreating rear. Come and see, is the whispered reply from corn and deer. But what am I, clod man of earth with a need to pee? Yet the vision is mine, a sacrilege to flee. Tracking his deering course, to what horizon will I be led? Better to go after him than to die in bed. Outbreaking wildness from a rural earth. The poem describes my desperation for a pee on a road with no service station, and then, as I stand in a field, this animal visitation. I remember he looked directly at me with his dark eyes. I used the words clod man of earth as a reference to Adam, the first human in the biblical myth of creation. I was told that this is a good translation of Adam, as he is made of the dust of the earth, a clod man. It was a way of reminding myself that I am part of the earth, not separate from it. I am an animal. I have, at times, and especially at the moment, sought to follow my own injunction and go and see. To be in the vital presence of that world, of the world, especially the natural, or as David Abraham names it, the more than human world. The room where I write and read has two windows and I hang bird feeders near them so I can watch the little birds and squirrels who come to them. Being close, even through glass, to a wild animal is thrilling to me. I feel somehow addressed. Here's a brilliant animal poem by Ted Hughes. The Thought Fox I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive, besides the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. Through the window, I see no star. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. Cold, delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. Two eyes serve a movement that now, and again now, and now, and now, sets neat prints into the snow between trees. And warily, a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow, of a body that is bold to come across clearings. An eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly, coming about its own business, till, with a sudden, sharp, hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. The window is starless still. The clock ticks 
the page is printed. Ted Hughes, whilst at Cambridge studying English, was up late struggling with an essay, a close reading of some poem. He fell asleep and dreamt that a man with a fox's head and paws came into the room and put its bloody paw on the essay and said, This has got to stop. Or in another version of the story, he said, You're killing me. When he awoke, Ted, it had felt so real to him that he imagined there might be a bloody paw print on the page. He stopped studying English and transferred to a degree in anthropology and archaeology and instead wrote poetry, and much of it about animals. The intense study of the fox and the deep symbiosis between the poem on the page and the animal marking its paw prints across the snow is testament to his intense familiarity with the natural world. Faber and Faber have recently published four volumes of Ted's animal poetry for kids and adults in lovely hardback volumes, beautifully illustrated. They include, they include the poem I just read. His words testify to the relationship possible between humans and animals. It's not a sentimental relationship. His poem, Pike, speaks of two of these fearsome fish found on a bankside. Ted says, One jammed past its gills down the other's gullet. The outside eye stared as a vice locks, the same iron in this eye, though its film shrank in death. Whew. He realises the dark and destructive power of animals as integrally part of their wildness and what they have to offer us. Vital presence. I'm fortunate enough to live in a kind of borderland between the city and the country. There's a large housing estate at the top of a road called Liberty Hill. And then if I walk into the valley and head west, I find myself right in the heart of the country. The animal world is vibrant in both worlds and they meet where I live. Urban foxes with no fear of humans are a constant threat to my chickens day or night. Of all the birds that any city bird feeder might attract, blue tits, coal tits, sparrows, blackbirds, robins and magpies. Yet as we are surrounded by trees and secluded, so we have jays, wrens, tree creepers, nuthatches, chaffinches, dunnocks and even barn owls. Badgers have a number of sets near us. I once found one scavenging in my skip. I found a dead peregrine falcon on my drive. Very young, just coming into its full feathers. It must have hit something and its neck was broken. It was the most beautiful animal I have ever held. At night, we hear and sometimes see the owls hooting at each other and hunting through the darkened woods. In the summer, we have little flitting bats skittering through the dusk, catching insects. Then there are the domestic animals in my world. Three old cats. Their mother April is 17 years old, and the other two are her offspring, and they're now 16. 
We just lost the other one, Flo, who curled up by the fire and slipped away in the night. They live a slow, sedentary life around us, eating twice a day and sleeping in warm spots round the house, radiator covers, where the warm pipes are, or on our beds. They're a little threat to the bird world anymore, and in the summer they find all the sunlit nooks in the garden. Then there are my two chickens. We had six at one time. Foxes and old age took the others. They're old, and lay sporadically. We keep them in a big fox-proof run, and I feed them daily, clean them out and tend them. The friendly creatures who peck around my legs with their grey, feathery faces. My son asked for a tortoise for his 21st, a pet that would outlive him. He's left home, my son that is, and we are custodians of Terry. Feeding him with salad greens daily, turning on and off his light. Then last but not least, our three dogs. The oldest, Gabriel, is a black and white border collie. He's deeply committed to us in the most dedicated way. He's 13 years old now and has arthritis, which makes him miserable sometimes. But it never dims his love for us and his willingness to show that devotion. Here's a poem I wrote about him in 2010. Gabriel There is a thud as my dog Gabriel rises up from the ground and lumbers his front paws onto the arm of my chair. He leans his face into mine, his bullet-headed friendship and tenacious fondness triumph over me. At once I drop whatever I'm doing to pat him. Border black and white with brown eyes in my blue ones, and in his coat the lonely aroma of the sheep-filled hills. My monochrome friend, my running comrade, my core rendered in animal form, his prone body down now next to my feet, his panting warmth on my toes, his breathing punctuated with hefty sighs as he dreams. The language of his paws on the ground of my heart addresses me from the green world, the gentle nature that pays the price of my living, begging me to listen. I can't read this without feeling emotional as he's getting older now and will leave me one day in the not too distant future. He's a powerful representative in our house of the green world and I'm desperately trying to listen to those representations. We also have a Jack Russell called Lily who thinks she is the queen of the world and by her insistent yelping can make us all jump to attention and do her bidding. She winds the other two dogs up like only adrenaline junkie terriers can, and has them flying out the door that she has barked at as it is opened, so much so that they're beside themselves and shoot out as if their life depended on this escape, and then she ambles back in that kind of with that job done look and lays down as if nothing's happened. Arthur, the youngest, a blue merle border collie with a marbled brown, grey, black and white coat and piercing blue eyes 
is a manifestation of my anxiety in dog form. He's what the breeders call highly strung. He is always on the alert and much of the time on edge. He has been by far the hardest to train. He was scared by the world around him from being a puppy and then his experiences have just confirmed his fears. He found it hard to find his place in the pack and the little Jack Russell kept winding him up all the time and then old Gabriel would give him a telling off for being so boisterous. I could not get him to come back when I let him off the lead. Then when he improved a little, he was chased home from the valley by four off-leash beagles who treated him like a fox. I've had two trainers work with him. The first set unattainable goals and then the second recognised he was a great dog and the problem was the Jack Russell. So, I started walking him every day, long walks, religiously, same walks, same paths, on his own some days, some days with the other two. I took treats and at home we worked on basic commands, sitting, staying, coming. It was good for me too. Solvitur ambulando. It is solved by walking. He has become a much better dog, happier, less nervy. He's still terrified of other dogs. He's getting better with horses, not so scared of the world. He makes eye contact with me all the time. Comes when I call him. In fact, when another dog is on the path, he'll often lay down so I can put a lead on him. So I feel we're on a journey with our anxieties together. Why go on about it? Well, as Abraham says, the power of language remains first and foremost a way of singing oneself into contact with others and with the cosmos. Because in articulating my relationship with this nervy dog, I'm singing myself into the physicality of the animals I share my life with. It is this physicality, this willingness to be animal too, that's a doorway to the possibility of change in my mental state. I don't mean projecting my human reading of the world onto the animal one, but rather allowing their wildness to break into my too domesticated existence. If you hear a little tapping once in a while during this podcast, I'm recording it into the room where Terry the tortoise lives and he's come to the window and he's tapping his head as if to say, yeah, I'm here too. (laughs) I've just been reading a book called Wild Signs and Star Paths, The Key to Our Lost Sixth Sense by Tristan Gooley. He talks about our slow system and our fast system. The fast system is our instinctual part, and animals use this all the time. Arthur knows when there's a dog coming, way before I do. All the dogs know a horse is going past our drive. They know the difference between me entering the kitchen to make a cup of tea and me entering the kitchen to take them for a walk. This is the fast system. And believe me, I can be wearing exactly the same gear but they know my intention. We relied on this primordial ability earlier in our evolutionary journey. 
to navigate, to keep safe, to hunt food, to grow food, to survive. The slow system is our frontal cortex, our rationality, our reasoning part, so emphasised by the Enlightenment. So much so that many of us have almost forgotten the instinctual, the fast part. However, for those of us who are anxious, on a long-term basis, it's the instinctual system that's become overstimulated, ironically through lack of attention. I'm no scientist, but this is the theory as far as I understand it. The oldest part in terms of evolution of our brain governs the limbic system, and part of this is done by the amygdala, an almond-shaped cluster deep in our brain, and it is this that's part of the fight-flight instinct. It's connected to the hypothalamus that emits hormones and regulates our physical responses. And emotional. In anxiety, we rely on this system. But it seems, if we are under constant stress and override these responses enough because we're too busy or too traumatised to listen to our body, then it becomes overactive, over-functioning and will not switch off without help. This is the part that learns from fear. If we have a fear reaction to a threat, say you go through a wood at night and hear a screech howl and it makes you jump out of your skin, the next time you make that journey, the instinctual system will remember and trigger the fight-flight response. Even if you try and use the rational part of your system, the slow part, to tell yourself it's unlikely to happen again, the adrenaline will be pumping. Well, this is generalised anxiety disorder. The fast system generalises from the past and applies it to the future. I had a panic attack in the cinema, so all cinemas become arenas for fight-flight responses. Once the amygdala is over-triggered, it keeps firing. The body is in SAS reconnaissance mode. They who dare win. And the frontal cortex goes into a search and rescue. If I feel so triggered, the rational part of me says there must be a reason for this dread. Without taking any responsibility for the many, many times it's overridden the primordial system with its demand for sticking at that which makes us stressed or at worst traumatised. The rational part is like a sergeant major. It just keeps pushing us back into the, the same situations trying to make us override that system rather than listen to it. So what do we do? Well, I am the anxious poet and I'm going to read another poet, Mary Oliver. She died on the 17th of January this year, just days before my lovely friend and poetic soul, Daniel O'Leary, Father Daniel O'Leary. God rest them both. Here's her famous poem the wild geese you do not have to be good you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves tell me about your despair yours and I will tell you mine meanwhile the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun 
and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. The soft animal of your body, let it love what it loves. There's such permission in this, and it takes time. In the course of this I've unearthed in myself that to find what the soft animal of my body loves, there are so many other voices in me telling me I cannot do that until I've fulfilled a whole lot of internal contracts and bargains with my obligations and commitments, with my moral rectitude and, and my reputation. What do you mean you want to watch birds on the feeders for half an hour and then walk the dogs to the top of the hill and look at yet another sunset? Really? You don't want to go to a long meeting in a fluorescent lit room at a big impersonal table or sit in a cold church listening to someone tell you how to live who has little idea themselves? You actually want to find a work that makes you feel that you contribute into a better world? You have a passion for something? And you want to make a career of it? Well, Mary says, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you. In the animal world, it's calling to you all the time. It's just come on the news that if we keep going the way we are, then the insect world will be decimated by the end of the century. The world is calling to us, both within and without, the soft animal of the body and the beauteous realm of nature. It's announcing to us our place in the family of things, and it's not the one we think. It's a much more humble place. This soft animal, this brief sojourner in whatever place you live, this skin we live in, Ask patiently for your attention. It calls to you like the wild geese, or the snowdrops breaking through the frosted earth, or the ladybirds that seem to be all over my bedroom window, or the nuthatches, little sharp-beaked birds at the feeder where I write, calling to me over and over, announcing your place, my place, in the family of things. If anything can reset an overstressed and traumatised amygdala. It's this. I spent part of this summer, I was very lucky, in Assisi. It nestles on the side of Mount Sebastio, overlooking the Umbrian plain. St Francis has made the town synonymous with peace, and he has become synonymous with animals. I think he's the only saint that has statues for sale in modern garden centres. From very early in his life in medieval Italy, the period known for crusades and inquisitions, he was sincerely in sympathy with the natural world. 
during what was called his conversion period, what I would call his recovery from PTSD, having been in a battle, been captured and then held in a Perugian dungeon for a year, he wandered beyond the city walls into the countryside around his home, which is beautiful. He observed the animal world closely and fell in love with it and with what he believed to be the creative force behind it all. He slept in caves, wandered the woods, swam in the rivers and became more animal. This reality of the natural world he experienced as crucified, as suffering. Both the natural world and the human, which was divided in his time into majore and minore, those who had and the multitude who had not. He was one of the richer class, the majore. In fact, he was part of a new merchant class that was on the up, the new majore. And yet he chose to live as a minore, to live with little, to be barefoot and mendicant, relying on the generosity of others to survive. His model for this were the animals he saw, who needed little to live and be free. He called his community the siblings of the lower class, the frater minore. This descent brought him cheek by jowl with the downcast and the animals, both wild and those who served the humans and offered suffered at our hands. In his biography by Donald Spotto, it says, He frees a rabbit captured in a trap. He returns to the water some struggling fish trapped in nets. He asks that honey be supplied for bees in wintertime. He tames a killer wolf, turning the beast into a town pet for the people of Gubbio. The animal world seems to respond immediately and naturally to him, as if the saint had re-established a kind of pre-lapsarian Eden, in which, it was believed, man, humans and beast existed in an ideal, harmonious state. Great quote. I believe this was a man who, in his mental distress and anguish, began to pay more and more attention to the fast part of himself, the instinctual, the soft animal of his body. Difficult because much has been made of his fasting and mortifications that were popular in medieval piety, and there is no doubt he did buy into some of this. However, he does apologise to his body at the end of his life, to the body he called Brother Ass, that brought him across Europe and the Middle East, that allowed him walking across Europe and the Middle East, that allowed him to make contact with the earth he loved. I see in him a truly human person, ready to feel and experience the natural world on its own terms, and seek harmony with it, rather than dominion over it. I want to finish this podcast with two poems and an invitation. The first poem tells a story that's become legendary among the many tales of Francesco. 
that is of his encounter with the Wolf of Gubbio. I went to Gubbio this summer for the day. It's what Assisi would have been like if it had not become the shrine of Francis and Clare. It is like all those hill towns in Umbria, climbing in labyrinthine streets, which suddenly open out into the squares with lovely vistas down onto the plain. There is a chapel that was closed on the day we went, dedicated to the bones of a wolf. This gives some historical veracity to the legend. Apparently, in the time of Francis, the town was being terrorised by a large male wolf that was coming into the streets and attacking the people, even taking children and babies. They begged Francis to come and help them. This is my poem telling the story. I imagine it all from the viewpoint of a beggar in the square where the encounter takes place. Two beggars and a wolf. The empty square is filled with vacated stalls, merchant abandoned wares in strewn profusion, and one cowering outcast, no roof offered to his beggarly frame. He hides from oncoming death. Then his eye is caught by the feet he sees striding into the centre of the piazza, calloused, discalced. The slender hips and long fingers, and those eyes, two orbs of terrifying empathy, scanning for the beast. Gubbio, the bustling Umbrian town, has jostled its neighbours, throwing up its proud medieval towers at God's blue dome, as if nothing could shake them. In fact, it took only a rapacious wolf devouring their children. Masses and rosaries made no difference. The priest told them it was their sins. Repentance the best remedy and, of course, tithes to the clergy for privileged intercession. Then he came, with his bowl, his rags and the aura of sanctity. A man once heir to the shelter afforded by Gubbio's burghers, but now choosing the exposure excruciatingly felt by the other beggar trembling in the deserted square. At the far end of the street, a grey, shambling gate and red moor slobber into the square, head swaying, sniffing the air, catching the pungent scent of the cowering beggar. The man stiffens, but the ragged figure out in the open calls out, Fur and bone, come to flesh and sinew, I want to contend with you. The beast slides into the open and approaches, a certain grace to its loping motion. In that deserted liminality their eyes meet, one pair red from too much hunger, the other from too much grief. The mendicant speaks, Brother, welcome, I am meat for your hunger, blood for your unquenchable thirst. The hidden vagrant shudders and waits for slaughter. The beast rises onto its back legs, the man opens his arms and they embrace, like wrestlers at the carnival, circling in some lupine human communion. They converse. All the shadows cast in that square come out of hiding. Fears, frauds, felons, 
cruelties, carnalities, cowardices, all projected by the Gubians into this wolf's dark pelt. The saint consumed them all with his voracious appetite for darkness, befriending all that we disown, leaving only the hungry animal with its aged inability to hunt. It now lay still and supine at the blistered holy feet, as one by one the townsfolk emerged, blinking into a new world, a world where they would feed a wolf in return for safety, and where only an outcast beggar saw the great transaction, in which a man called Francis mirrored Christ's great stoop, consuming all their darkness and reassembling it into light. This story reminds me of a recent news piece from northern Russia where a town is in fear as they are being invaded by polar bears whose environment is disappearing because of us and they're hungry. Francis is able to understand the beast and bring harmony between the natural world and the human one. (laughs) He's ahead of his time, ahead of ours. Yesterday, children were on strike from school, demanding the same thing, that we find that that harmony before it's too late. I don't know what this requires, apart from the collective will of governments, corporations, cities, agriculture, people and individuals. I do know that each of us can make more connections with the natural world no matter where we live. I got a book for Christmas called Rewild Yourself, 23 Spellbinding Ways to Make Nature More Visible. It's full of little practices we can do to make a deeper connection with the natural world around us. So this is where the invitation comes in. Francis was also a poet and a songwriter. It was a part of the troubadour tradition. Poetic songs were written and performed about chivalry, nobility and courtly love. He translated this into his faith and his encounter with the natural world. His Canticle of the Creatures is the first recorded poem in Italian rather than Latin. It's still taught to Italian schoolchildren. As his life came to an end and he was ill, as well as suffering from malarial fevers, he had contracted an eye condition in Egypt that ruined his sight. He would sit at a window in San Damiano, the church and convent he rebuilt with his own hands, and look out over the Umbrian plains with the swallows and the swifts wheeling past the window. His poem celebrates all the elements he could see and feel. I recommend that you search for it online. It's just the Canticle of the Creatures by St Francis. He outlines his abiding love and commitment both 
to the natural elements and to the force he felt behind those elements. And toward the end, he even befriends his own physical illness and his death. Wilma's now going to sing, my wife, Wilma, is going to sing a version of it by Donovan. It's not the whole song, but you'll get an idea of the beauty that he both portrays and captures. Brother Sun and Sister Moon I seldom see you, seldom hear your tune Preoccupied with selfish misery Brother Wind and Sister Air Open my eyes to visions pure and fair That I may see the glory around me I am God's creature, of him I am a part I feel his love awakening my heart Brother Sun and Sister Moon I now do see you, I can hear your tune So much in love with all that I survey Brother Wind and Sister Air Open my eyes to visions pure and fair That I may see the glory around me While I was writing the last book that I published, A Night Sea Journey, I put into it a collection of poems about Francis as I thought Francis was someone who had made his own profound night sea journeys in his life. And as I was thinking about him and this canticle of the creatures that he wrote, I thought, gosh, I'd, I'd like to write one of my own. A kind of homage to his, but also as, a, as an exercise in that noticing that vital presence of nature around me as a way of singing my way into communion and contact with the world around me. Amazingly, I went out with a friend um, on Saturday last uh, and his son taking photographs. His son's a really keen photographer. He's only 13, but he's got a brilliant eye. And as we were walking back, we'd, we'd spent two hours really looking at the world around us. We were rewarded with a barn owl. It was dusk, fluttering out of the trees and right down in front of us and flew uh, down the avenue of trees in front of us its wingspan just over our heads not unfortunately uh, enough time for us to capture it on film but 
it didn't matter. That visitation was something special. Something other. Something powerful. So here is, is my attempt. At a, I call it a canticle to creatureliness. Our creatureliness, uh, the soft animal of our bodies. It's kind of what the soft animal of my body loves. Here we go. A canticle to creatureliness. And I have at the head of the poem a quote from Donald Spotto's Reluctant Saint, The Life of Francis of Assisi. It's a really good biography. He says, Out of the lowest depths of illness, misery and rejection, the man who had so loved to sing recognised everything in creation as his sister and brother and friend. To find myself in the wonder of it all, caught unawares or just unhurriedly attending to the world around me. To be dwarfed by a galaxied sky, doming, arcing and revolving over the little space I briefly occupy. There is no gratitude like the one that breathes its first gasp when the shafts of the smoky sun tap out a spring rhythm on the new buds. That sun who is regal, inducing fealty, I want to bow down in the radiance that warms my wintered yet wakening plot. The night sky has called to me through the dark months, bending my gaze up to the jewellery of the firmament and the moon, sometimes so bright I have her shadow. The sure power of the wind in the trees around my house, whose resilience is most apparent when they sway and bend. And the buffeted birds making raids on the feeders, Breakstick feet clinging to life and flourishing in my provision. Down to the river in my valley, tannined, tea-like, beery waters a constant commentary on the futility of the ephemeral and panicky. And the water in my white bath, a soak away for my tensing against life body, worn down by my ill use, Finding liquid easement. Oh, and that blaze that illuminates my nightness, jubilantly sparking into the winter cold, with memories of bonfires with my grandma, and with the promise of brightened circles. Making a fire can be such an act of hope. Then there is the mothering in many guises that the more than human world graces. Bounty unfathomable, but not inexhaustible, pushed to the end of its tether by us, yet renewing her covenant in every spring. Her forgiveness of our abuse is a call to me to take stock of the blows I have received and to absolve my way to amnesty and release. 
the acceptance of ageing and brokenness in praise of robust vulnerability beckons in the pains my body aches and grieves with. And the dying of it all, the end of every beginning, I find no wisdom or solace in avoiding it. Better to grasp its ardent hand in mine and hope for buds beyond the leaf fall. So, the invitation I extend to you is to make your own list or paragraphs or even a poem or a song about the natural world you can experience where you live. City or countryside, there is always weather, sunlight and hail. Get a plastic bird feeder that sticks to the window and wait for the birds who come and let you see them up close. Go out and walk, look up as well as down. The air is full of life. And I hope that you find yourself in the family of things. <laughs>